Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray doing the steering as we wander off course in search of the parts of the game that most never talk about. It's been a tumultuous few weeks at the top end of the game with the rise and apparent fall of the much talked about Saudi Super League, the possible return of Tiger Woods and other matters of controversy. Try that again. The possible return of Tiger Woods and other matters of controversy. And all of that stuff's important in its own way. But it's not why most of us love the game. The things that really hook us on golf are kind of hard to articulate, which is why we're drawn to the works of those who capture that spirit and do it with a mix of elegance, humour and education. Today, we're going to meet one such person in Richard Pennell, founder of the Pitchmarks Substack newsletter and the revelation of 2022 so far, keeping in mind, of course, that it is still only February. We'll meet Richard in just a moment, but first, the man who almost always has a link for the show notes at hand, Path Connoisseur Adrian Logue. Logue, this one will be fun. I think Richard hits a lot of notes that are right in your wheelhouse, as the kids say, though. I don't think they actually say that. I'm just saying that they say that. Indeed. Yeah, uh, long-time admirer of Richard's work ever since I first heard of him about a month ago. And, <laughs> when was it? Just after Christmas? I think <laughs> it was this like year, it. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And uh, been a voracious reader of everything he's produced since. Well, and uh, really been a prolific writer, so yeah. you can yeah, we've got, he's <laughs> got a voracious reader, so we're going to have a chat to him about We're going to have some advice for him on That's that. That's exactly right. You're making the rest of us look bad. Let's meet Richard now. Richard, you're a bit of a mystery man, bobbing up out of nowhere in the golf scribbling world. Thanks for taking some time to chat. Uh, I hope you're prepared for a thorough grilling. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now I've got the microphone plugged in. I'm I'm ready to go, right? <laughs> well and truly. On your Fire away. Where did you come from, Richard? What is your background? I think there's a lot of us around the place sort of fell over the Substack news. I think you actually started it at the back end of last year, but I think a lot of us sort of twigged to it earlier this year. Where's that come from? Where is it coming from? What's your background in the game? So I've been working in golf for about 20-odd years. Um, I was a greenkeeper for five years, originally went in the book trade and um, just found I, I wasn't playing golf at all and was missing it having grown up playing the game. And so I went to be a greenkeeper for five years um, at a course called Mitcham, Southwest London. Loved that, loved being outdoors. Uh, then came indoors, uh, crossed what the greenkeepers are called the, the, over to the dark side. <laughs> and um, I've worked in management of three clubs now, New Zealand in Surrey, Royal Wimbledon on the outskirts of London. And um, for the last five years, it's not just stopped there, working golf club in Surrey, which has got loads of, you know, architectural pedigree. Yeah. Quite the uh, resume you've got <laughs> going there, Richard. What yeah. about the writing part? Where's that from? Well, uh, is the stuff that I'm playing with now has been in the back of my head for 25 years and I, I think i've just never had the time or the guts to do anything about it really I, i've loved golf since i was 11 so it's been playing 35 years now not very well i'm not getting better i'm going the other way in fact but um i just love the game and the camaraderie of it and um just being around people who enjoy playing golf not necessarily scoring uh it's a pretty rustic version of the game i play um, and so, yeah, I've just, I took a decision a few months ago to take a sabbatical and, and focus on family life and focus on writing a bit. It's just something I, I think I needed to get out of my system and I'm doing that as fast as I can, but, um, I'm actually really enjoying it. So I'm glad, you know, a few people are enjoying it too. I'm glad you're enjoying it because you're naturally very good at it. Um, a bit like the prodigal son, Richard's come back home here. <laughs> it seems he's fallen into the right fold. He's touched everything there that I think we've been talking about here for the last two years. 
Yeah, and th- that's evident in his uh, in his writing. There's a there's a variety of topics covered there, um, and uh, they're all from the minutiae of something like uh, a very long essay on car parks. <laughs> To, uh, <laughs> to Lowe's having a physical to, reaction as he told this is so up his alley, isn't it? Eh? To talking about uh, you know uh, what it was like to hit a you know pitch shot when you're young versus what it's like to hit a pitch shot now. That I, I do enjoy that style of writing which describes the emotion or the the experience of playing golf. You, you don't see a lot of that. You see a lot of writing about the mechanics of golf or a lot of observations about golf, but writing that describes the experience of playing golf and the experience of playing golf with other people I think is something I really enjoy we had Jay Revel yeah. on the on the podcast sure. a couple of times and he he writes in that sort of style I think this is Richard's sort of like the English Jay Revel <laughs> uh, and you know there's there's a lot of parallels there um, all of which makes me wonder Richard who did you read growing up where were these influences from hmm um Golf literature, I didn't read too much of, actually. Um, I read Golf in the Kingdom maybe 25 years ago, and I need to reread that. Um, I read loads of the magazines. I was a proper golfing nerd once I got the bug, so um, I spent most of my childhood, as I remember it at least, reading equipment brochures. You remember the old paper brochures that Mizuno and that used to send out? Uh, so nothing particularly cultured there. Um, loads of other stuff. I've always been into books. Um, but since, uh, well, about five years ago, starting to work at Woking, um, there's a bit of history there. Bernard Darwin was captain of the club and president of the club and spent a lot of his time there um, uh, before moving down to the ride towards the end of his life. And obviously he's, you know, one of the best golf writers out there. Um, part of this focus for me on on writing was to bring back my love of the game because it got a bit flat you don't when you're running a club you don't play as much as probably everyone else would expect you to it's actually got nothing to do with golf does it richard running a club has nothing to do with golf and a lot to do with politics and trying to manage people no and you you just you know the last couple of years we just hadn't had the time and loads of my peers are in the same boat you it's quite easy to realize that you just never play or when you do play you're not enjoying it because you're worrying about other you know the state of the golf course or something um so it's been i've been playing lots of golf and i've been reading lots of golf stuff actually a a close contact of yours uh, clayton sent me peter thompson's writing on golf which i've just started which is fantastic and i didn't even know he wrote anything about golf until clayton's put me onto that so that's wonderful uh, rediscovering Alistair Cook's um, mm-hmm. Marvellous Mania, which is just fabulous. Um, yeah, a bit of a variety, really. I need to read more about golf. Yeah. I noticed that the uh, the gentleman you mentioned just now, I didn't recognise the name, so I'm going to be writing that down at the end. Was it Jay? Jay Revel or Revel. Right. Not a name like yours that could be pronounced three or four different ways, and you don't quite <laughs> sure. So, in the course of a podcast, you just give all four pronunciations, and at some point, you're bound to be right, like a like a stopped yeah. clock twice a day. It's right. Not uncommon, a not uncommon story that Richard and you would have come across this plenty of times too. Like people drawn to work in the golf industry because they love golf, and what it actually does is stop them playing, and for many, stop them enjoying golf the way they used to. And you would yeah. have come across plenty of that as well, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And I just sort of, I was hardly playing at all. And when I was, I wasn't enjoying it. And then the last three months, I've been back to loads of places I hadn't been for years. We have such a wealth of great golf courses within an hour or two where I live in Surrey. Um, just a couple of examples. I went to Tandridge, an old cult course. I hadn't been there for 15 years and it was just fabulous and went and explored Cleve Hill I'd never been to and Stoneham, just amazing sort of not, not second tier golf courses, but just under the radar of most people. Um, there's so much here. So it's been a joy getting back into that. Yeah, there's a bit of a Melbourne vibe about that whole London thing, isn't there? Spring Very Valley so. in Sydney would be probably one of our most revered golf courses. Yeah. Barely rates are mentioned in Melbourne because of its neighbours. Yeah, and, and that is magnified, I think, threefold. There was a little bit of a discussion on, on Twitter yesterday, I think, about uh, the concentration of world-class golf. That's well, somebody, that yeah, somebody posed the, the question, pick a, pick a city to live and you've got an hour circle around it, uh, and, and where would you live in the world as a golfer if they were your option? Got to be London, I think. Apart, apart from the seasonality, that's the only thing. Mm. That, yeah, Melbourne. New York, Melbourne, and London were the three that yeah. just kept coming up because at least Long space. Island. Yeah, yeah that, that, those veins of sort of uh, of sort of rich golf. Who? What were your golf influences then, Richard? You said you grew up as a golf nut. So, firstly, how did you get into the game? And I think we've discussed this many times. So I think most of us start as what Logue likes to call look downers. Like you were saying, you look at the equipment brochures and you focus on your score. It's all about hitting the ball. Hitting the ball. score. Getting it on the green and those. Playing things. golf, good. Some people morph beyond that into the sorts of things that we're talking about here, I think, and the things that you talk about in your newsletter where golf becomes – well, that becomes almost the least interesting part of golf in so many ways. There's so much more to explore. How did that journey unfold for you from look downer to what we like to call look uppers? So I was um, like my son, actually, at the same, he's at the same age as I was. I, I got to about 10 and there was a teacher's strike in England. And um, suddenly my parents had just looked at each other and thought, <laughs> what are we going to do with him? You know, he can't play football this weekend. So um, they were desperate to find something to do. My, my parents didn't play. My father worked with someone who was a very good golfer, scratch golfer. And he said, look, can you take him down and, and, I'll you give know, you 10 quid. <laughs> take yeah, just get it, take him off my hands yeah, for the afternoon, right. I think. Um, and I completely got the bug. And this guy took me under his wing and got me into a, a club, an old James Bray course uh, down near Cardiff where we grew up. And we lived in a part of town where there was a pitch and putt five-minute walk away. And um, so I was sort of 11, 12 with a you know, handful of golf balls and a pitching wedge. And I was out there to rain and shine, you know, any weather, just mesmerized by the game, really. Mm. Uh, then played that until I, um, you know, discovered late night bars and all that sort of thing in my later teenage years. Left golf behind for a while, wasn't playing very much. Um, and then just sort of fell in with a, uh, a group of, people who I met most of them we mentioned deal earlier in the preamble but um uh, I joined deal a few years back and um there's a big emphasis on foursomes golf there and fast golf and it's just there's they just come at it from a different angle you know they have honors boards and they have very good golfers playing there but there's this um uh sort of type of old british club where it's not really about the score. It's about the the experience and they love to play fast and they, they enjoy hickory golf and foursomes and just varieties on the, on that central theme of golf. 
and I've just been bitten by all of those. And recently, I've been trying a few other things like speed golf and um, uh, playing with three clubs. And I just, you know, I like playing golf, and I'd completely forgotten that. So it's coming back. We'll come back to that. The notion of completely. You're a long way out over the end of the board there with speed golf, Richard. I'm sorry, I'm not following you into that corner. I'm well, not very far. <laughs> and the guy I play with. We played at Muirfield just before Christmas and he lapped me on about, I get, he gave me a, I don't know, 10 minute head start. He'll probably listen to this, so I'll exaggerate, but uh, he lapped me on about the ninth. It was embarrassing, but never mind. I it, got around. It's actually quite a remarkable spectator sport. So, did you come with us down to Canberra? No, I didn't. I remember you covering that. There was a, they yeah. did a speed golf championship here in Australia down at, I think it was federal in Canberra. And one of the guys who worked in the office was a, you know, an amateur runner and a decent golfer. I think he'd been a PGA trainee at some point. Um, so he's, uh, you know, he's John Perkins. He might, John be, Perkins might be listening. Maybe listening. That's exactly right. So Great we John. go down there, and the the star of the show was a guy who had been a Commonwealth Games runner. He didn't medal, but he he was a Commonwealth Games level. He represented Australia as a runner, and I think he played off maybe scratch one or two. So he was first off. So they go off in the comps, they you know, send one off at nine and then the next one goes off over many minutes later. And so I think it was about four minutes between two times. And Perkins was off about fifth or sixth, I think. So it was maybe 20 minutes tops. And the first tee and the ninth green weren't far apart. So bang, this guy off he goes and then we're watching everybody else. And Perkins gets up on the tee and we hear this, thum, thum, thum. he's running up the ninth, this bloke already. It's literally <laughs> been about 14 or 15 minutes. He's already running up the ninth playing. And I remember Perkins looking at me. I looked at him and you could always see him saying, i got no hope here. This is crazy. It's amazing how fast they were. And the scores he shot, I think, because they combine the time and the score, don't they, competitively? Yeah. yeah. It's the, the minutes. Shots over a oh, yes. Plus the thing, it's, it was amazing, the sorts of numbers they were returning. They were well off, the, well off the track there. Forgetting how much you enjoy the game, Richard, how did that happen? The, the journey of discovery back is obviously wonderful and you kind of write about that. There's always hints of that in, the, in your writing about all sorts of things. But that losing the – forgetting how much you enjoy the game, how does that happen to us? Um, by not playing, I think was a key thing. You know, I've got, we have two children, my wife and I, and they're, they're 11 and 10 and they're not quite golfing yet. So it's quite a busy time of life. They take you out of the game in your prime, don't they, Richard? (laughs) It's it's like those poor guys in South Korea. You'd be playing the best golf of your life now if it wasn't for those kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's not saying much. I was thinking when you were talking about speed golf, I'm an amateur golfer and an amateur runner. (laughs) You've got all boxes covered there. Yeah, well done. Um, So I think that's part of it. But when you're running a club, I mean, I don't don't want to sort of get negative about the golf in the UK, but um, world handicapping system is just not my bag. And, you know, everyone worrying about scores the whole time and marking cards. I get that lots of people love doing that and they probably love it more than I do because their scores are a hell of a lot better than mine. But um, that's not why I want to play. And um, so I wasn't playing that sort of golf. And, um, yeah, I think I, it was always lurking there that I wanted to get back to it and play more, but it didn't seem like there was ever time to do it so we almost by default don't we compute confuse or we certainly do in australia confuse playing golf with playing competition golf it's a given in australia most of it. if you go to play golf you're playing competition golf like is there anything you'd like to say to richard about the world handicapping system sorry perhaps <laughs> no uh, richard in my day job i'm, I'm involved with uh, running <laughs> handicapping would it be fair to say you're one of the architects of the world handicapping system <laughs> in some small some, way somewhat involved there yeah but yeah. uh it, look I, I i get what you're saying it's um 
uh, you know, Australia were dialing that up to 11. Like every game here is a competition game. And oh, twice a week sometimes. Twice a day sometimes. Exactly. There are yeah. clubs that have and, competition. Uh, I must admit, I, it, it, I, to me, it, um, I appreciate the challenge of it. Um, I think there's uh, an attraction to club golf in particular where you're playing the same course week after week and you've got this baseline against which you can measure your performance week after week by playing the same course. There's, of course, all of the familiarity of the people you're playing with and that's a lot of fun um, and and the, the atmosphere of your, of your home club. Um, but the personal challenge is there, I think, of posting a score every week and seeing how you're going um, against this history that you've got of many, many rounds at that course. And I, I think there's a similar uh, a similar challenge in, you know, social club players who go around and play a lot of different courses, but to a lesser extent. I, I can definitely see that attraction to playing Saturday comp golf and posting a score every week into your handicap. But when I go away, and, and I, I do that, I think it's unavoidable actually in Australia. You can't Don't, really get away without playing comp golf no. if you're a member of a golf club. Not very regular golf in that. But if I go away, I don't even keep score. Like if I'm playing somewhere else, um, we'll play a bit of match play or something. I just went on that trip to uh, the Bellarine Peninsula last week and we played a bunch of games of golf and I don't, I couldn't tell you within five shots what I, what I had on any one of those rounds. I wouldn't have a clue, but I... We had some good matches. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Ding dong battles with uh, the ding dong <laughs> with um, you know squaring holes with eights and stuff. It was it was a lot of fun. I've often thought, Richard, a little bit like running a golf club has nothing to do with golf. Often I feel like competition golf has nothing to do with golf. It just has to do with competition. Yeah. It draws a certain sort of personality for whom it's the competition that appeals, not these other sort of esoteric things about golf that we're talking about. Do you reckon there's any truth in that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a there's a sort of divide there, and there are plenty of people I know from working in clubs who straddle that and can do both sides of it perfectly happily. But uh, we all sit somewhere in that spectrum between um, being obsessed by our scores and not not caring. Um, yeah, I, I sorry, I didn't mean it to sound very negative about that. The um, preoccupation with scoring because I get why people do that. It's just not the uh, that's not the form of golf that suits either my level of golf or my my natural. You'll be getting letters from your members. Well, your members will be complaining when they. Whether you wanted to be negative or not, this is what happens. I've written this column <laughs> a couple of times over the years about you know the joy of just enjoying golf without competition. Guaranteed, they always get an extreme response from people who are very very anti the notion that if you have a golf club in your hand that you're not keeping score for many people it's the whole point of the game and again it's not a criticism to say it's not saying there's anything wrong with that but it's perfectly legitimate to like all the other stuff about golf without that should you want to uh, and I'm not I sure that that's we talk about golf being a broad church, don't we? And, it, it, you know, lots of people from different um, backgrounds and so on can play the game. There's access right across the board. But um, isn't it lovely that you can play golf at those two extremes? You can either be someone who can hit the ball well and, and score and really feel the vibe of that, or you could be me. I'm just hacking it around, but I can't stop smiling. And the game offers us both, you know, an outlet for that. I think it's wonderful. Are you on board with my theory, Richard, that there are two types of people in the world? There are golfers and there are non-golfers. And not everybody who plays golf is a golfer. 
and not everybody who doesn't play golf is a non-golfer. There's something more at play there, do you think, is there? The, the things that we've just been touching on there, I think, is what that's about. I know lots yeah. of people who play golf regularly, twice a week, who I would, who've never picked up a golf book, never had any interest in the game beyond how many Stableford points they're having that particular day or the bad yeah. luck they had the day before. And that, you know, that, I think there's a different meaning to that for me. There's a different meaning to the word golfer in some ways. Um, yeah. I think it's more about other stuff that that we're sort of talking about here. Where do you get your ideas for you? I mean, the, talk about prolific. You've been pumping them out daily up until recently. For, A, you're making the rest of us look bad, so stop doing that, please. Yes. <laughs> and, and we're worried you're going to run out of stuff. And we're worried, exactly. What am I going to be reading to in pace June? Pace yourself. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, I think that's a genuine concern, actually. Well, I, I think I said earlier, you know, the, this stuff's been rattling around in my head and the, the d- desire, I guess, to try and do some writing and see if it's any good has been lurking and uh, in the grey matter for 25 years. So if I had nothing to write down, I'd, I've been wasting a hell of a lot of time. So I do have some lists of um, odd topics. Quite often they come to me at the strangest times, you know, that a word will leap out at me when I'm trying to have a shower or walking the dog or whatever, or, or often playing golf. And that, we, we experience such strange things and, and funny moments, don't we, when we're, you know, playing golf with mates or, um, experiencing hard bounces on the, you know, into a ditch or whatever. It's, uh, it's a fascinating, rich game. So I, I would hope there's plenty more to come. When and um, where do you write? And how is that's a whole separate journey unfolding there because right, uh, there are people in the world well, who love writing as much mm-hmm. as golf. So I've, I was a greenkeeper for five years, as I mentioned earlier. And one thing about greenkeepers, they get up very early and that habit has never left me. It's best time of the day. My, my household doesn't wake up till about seven. Um, generally a bit later on the weekends, I'm up at five and I'll have a cup of coffee and I'll, I'll sit and write for as long as there's something coming out normally. So, you know, it's generally an hour or so. It might be longer some days. But it's first thing in the morning and I have, you can't see it, but I'm sat at it now. I have this um, lovely old desk that belonged to my grandfather that I'd always loved. And uh, about five years ago or something, we were clearing up various things. And that is my writing desk. So I've got all this new tech equipment that, you know, by now I I don't know how to use the stuff. Um, But I've got, you know lovely fountain pens and um, this old mahogany oh, desk. Oh, after after the podcast, we're going to go on a little tour of your desk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. That'll just be for, for me, Richard. Um, <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, tell us a little bit about your process with writing. Do you just do you have a little ideas book or like a, a, a notes yeah. folder and then you take you pluck a note out of it and then expand on it or are you constantly outlining ideas and then you just pick one up and flesh it out? Or so- um, I use a, a tool called Trello, a sort of a online card system tool, and I just chuck anything in there. I've got a, a project, just project management tool, isn't it? Thinking well, about getting into yeah. your studio, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> um, so I lob stuff in there, and then I use these old. I mean, we're on podcast, but you you guys can see it here. I use these um oh, index cards. Lectum. Uh, no, no, I do have index cards, but I don't use them. But these are really nice notebooks. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah, little field notes. Oh, and written notebooks. by hand. You don't write your 
comp yeah. by hand, do you? No, you can't do construction. Well, I plan them. So I plan them by hand. And then um, there's a guy. Do you remember the book? Um, I've never actually read it. The Legend of Bag of Vance. Yes. I certainly do. I just wrote a movie review Stephen on Stephen Pressfield. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, he, um, he does, he's got several books about sort of writing process. But one thing of his just caught my mind it, it, call it the full scat process you just write down the the key themes the tone and split it into three acts and i've been using that recently to try and keep things uh, to a readable length otherwise i get carried away and you know everyone falls asleep for the end i think so Sounds a lot like golf instruction, doesn't it? You <laughs> started yeah. this writing journey and then you're taking instruction from those who've been sort of good at it yeah. in the past. You're naturally good at writing, Richard. You've done much before. It's a different thing writing to be mm. read to writing shopping lists and notes and formal emails and newsletters and those sorts of things that you would have done as a club manager. That side of writing, writing for entertainment, writing in a way that will keep people reading. It's a muscle that needs to be exercised yeah, as well. No question it? about to, that. To be refined yeah um i hadn't done much before i i posted a few things on medium to a, a tiny audience um within the last couple of years and that felt like i was you know running around with no clothes on it is quite i feel quite exposed sending stuff out and i think lots of people feel that with this sort of uh endeavor don't they they feel you know like frauds or um uh Pressfield calls that the resistance and you'll think of any reason to not write something or produce a film or whatever it is that's going to be beneficial like uh, doing sit-ups he says you'll you'll think of any reason mm. to get out doing that stuff so it's a constant battle against that I think but um, I do enjoy it I really enjoy it. Work-wise like you say I mean most of the communications you do as a club manager are pretty formal but when we so we had two pretty much three months lockdowns here and for some reason i can't even remember why it started but i i think we had a concern that the members would be you know sitting at home terrified locked in um feeling alienated from the world and then their club which means you know working's one of those places means a hell of a lot of people to its members it means a lot to its members sorry and um so I was writing to them every day, and frankly, it was nonsense. It was, you know, bits of history of the club, um, bits of other people's recollections of the good and bad shots they'd hit and their mates and so on. But somehow it sort of flowed for a while, and it was quite fun, and it just took everyone's mind off, including me, to go our minds off uh, what was going on in the wider world and, and sort of seemed to strengthen the connection with the club, really. Um so that was my only exposure to it in a professional uh, context. And, and it got to a point where we were all ready to get back outdoors, get back on the golf course and stop reading this nonsense <laughs> I was concocting every morning. Uh, and I was in that camp too. I'd had enough of it. So, yeah. so yeah, long answer. But no, I've not done much of it before, but I've always thought I'd like to do so. What are correlations there, isn't it, between writing and golf? The vulnerability in particular. Talk to professional golfers about this. There's, it's a very lonely place, the golf course, playing at the top level competitively in so many ways. And everything you do is open to scrutiny, can't be hidden. If you shoot 80, they put it in the paper, <laughs> whether you want them to or not. Is there some sort of correlation or crossover there with sort of the competitive golf? And, and is what you're trying to do with writing, uh, is that, the opposite of what we're talking about with your golf in some ways. 
You play golf but yeah. without keeping score. Is the notion for this writing to sort of keep score in a way of maybe turning it into something more than just a bit of a hobby and fun, which I hope that you do. Yeah, you might be onto something there. I hadn't really thought about that before, but I mean, column in that, Richard. Yeah. Write that down in your notebook while we're here. Actually, no, no, I might, <laughs> yeah, I, might, on, I, might I might write that column. Rod's got to come that's up right. with something every week. Yeah, that's so right. Yeah. <laughs> he hoards ideas. Yeah, uh, we. I think life's about confidence, isn't it? And if you if you're going in to hit your pitch shot with a to- the, the complete lack of confidence that I normally have going into it, you're only going to thin or fat it. So uh, it's it's a bit the same with writing. I think having a plan, whether you're playing golf or writing, just takes away a lot of that. It, it gives you the space to to sort of execute if you've got some boundaries. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna dwell on that rod for a while. You can also double hit it, Richard. So don't leave that one. There are three options. You can fat it, thin it, or double hit it. They're the they're the three outcomes of potential pitching when you get out on the golf yeah. course. Yeah, so you hadn't thought about it yet. You, you'll have any, anyway. I'm playing tomorrow, so you know what's going to happen. <laughs> when you get to the level where you've had a triple hit, Richard, as I have, where it catches the hosel and then the face as it turns over, and there's, there's three contacts there. That's a joy. Logue, you remind me in some ways a little bit of Richard. You probably don't do the sort of the more column idea, but this notion of non-working media <laughs> that we've been ribbing you with for some years. G- gentleman journalist. I, I, I like him now since the, uh, Stephen Proctor. Yeah, uh, the, the contradiction in terms, as we've pointed out. Bernard Darwin considered himself a gentleman journalist. Yeah, so he probably went on the odd fun run too or joy flight, which also don't make any sense. But you do your you write rarely but well when you do it is what Richard's talking about there making sense. And could you write about other stuff aside from golf, do you reckon? Uh, yeah, well, I, I do. I, I you know, wrote a blog for a long time on tech stuff and um, about businesses and stuff Anybody like that. interested in that? Uh, <laughs> no, I had a little bit of a readership. But yeah. um, I, I think it's the same sort of uh, skill set applied, just applied to a different area of interest. Um, it, it, every time for me it's just – thinking deeply about something um i'm often reminded of uh the story you tell of the the old journo you worked with who be walking around uh the media center or like you know going out for a cigarette or something like that and so the young bloke asks him what are you doing goes i'm writing it's Uh, actually huggy story dan jenkins Jenkins, walks out of the media center at the masters and dan jenkins is having a smoke and huggy says what are you doing and he looks at me says i'm writing yes (laughs) because (laughs) for me like whatever the topic is that's uh, like i'm writing about movies now (laughs) and um, that's golf movies golf movies golf and golf adjacent movies uh and for me that's that's what it's about is just thinking about the themes of whatever it is i'm trying to write about constantly like when i'm having a shower when i'm brushing my teeth when i'm having breakfast when i'm on the bus you know um, routine you've got going i'm just thinking about <laughs> i've got most of the, the the check marks of a normal lifestyle covered off there but yeah just thinking about those things and, and I, that's the same thing i do with my work actually like you know making software i'm, I'm thinking about just letting problems stew and uh letting them slowly resolve in your mind until you've got got a, a theme that you can hit on and, and just execute then. Um, and in, in the meantime, I'm sort of just, you know, expanding on notes. So that's why I'm interested in Richard's process because for me, 
I've got the luxury of time with everything I write. I'm never, I'm rarely under any sort of meaningful deadline. Oh, you are now with your movie column. Um, but and I've it's a, a whole new world but I got, for you. I've got a whole month to do each one. Yeah. And, and look, deadlines are something I'm very familiar with from software. But um, I use that, I use the whole month basically to write that one column and it's only a thousand words. Um, so that's, it's pretty luxurious uh, position to be in. So, um, but I, I take a bunch of notes and then I let them sort of coalesce or I let them stew in my head and then coalesce over the month. It'd be outrageous if I didn't produce something reasonably refined <laughs> by the end of that. And, and also none of it comes particularly naturally to me. I'm laboring and I'm interested to see what Richard, uh, uh, you know, how Richard feels about this, but I'm laboring over every sentence. Hard and work. I'm consuming it at the same time. I'm saying to myself, is do I think that's come out well? And I'm just constantly rereading it and and trying to read it as a consumer. And I know when it's good when I'm reading something and I just try and iterate until I get to that. Any of that makes sense to you, Richard? Yeah. This has got not all of it. Yeah. (laughs) It's 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 fascinating. I think I I certainly need to have it. I need to be in a different um, headspace to to read it and try and work out if it's any good or complete rubbish. I can't write it and then read it and, with any sort of um, reasonable uh, analysis of it. So I, I have to write my bits and let them sit, yes. a bit like Adrian does there, and let my thoughts settle down and then go back to it later. So, yeah, I've never been particularly good with deadlines either. <laughs> Is it well? Yeah. You, <laughs> you've been nuts the way you've been producing lately. So once you're introduced to a deadline, you'll understand the joy of. There's no problem with getting up and writing it every day, Richard. There's no need to release it. <laughs> Save that stuff up. You, you get up at five, Richard, which is a bit of a brag right off the bat. There, I'm, you know, I'm not. I'm not an early starter. Um, are, are you done with whatever you're writing for that day by the time? Every, by the time you're meant to be starting work, or <laughs> you? Uh, yes, yeah, generally, uh, just of late because I'm in a gap between work at the moment, so I have a bit more time. So I, some days, if I'm not playing golf or doing something else, I will go back and spend a bit more time on on a piece. It doesn't tend to be the stymied stuff. I'm just I'm working on a few other bits and pieces. So, um, but it, I would think stymied is probably max of an hour a day and that's why the frequency's dropped off a bit because um uh it's you know there's there's other things to get done so mm. sorry i think i called it pitch marks that of course is your twitter handle the newsletter is stymied uh, yeah that's yeah. my mistake there so we'll put a link to that in the show notes obviously words there you've got to refine your brand though richard like yeah. settle on one or the other Oh, I can see the cover photo in his office there with his granddad's desk and the fountain pen. This is all (laughs) fantastic sort of stuff. It's all sort of part of a weird lifestyle is the wrong word, isn't it? But that sort of enjoyment of that sort of golf, this kind of writing, it's it's an interesting life space you found yourself in there, Richard. Um, Is this a version of a midlife crisis for you in some ways? I think so. I think that's what everyone else would call it. I'm calling it a stock take. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, it, I, it's been a weird time for pretty much everyone, hasn't it, last couple of years. And I, I just needed a break from that world um, and uh, to reset and rediscover my love of the game and do a bit of writing. And it just, you know, various things coalesced um, for 
me and my family that we can do that for a couple of months and I do need to get back to work. <laughs> I'm sure your wife reminds you of that fairly regularly <laughs> as well, having you around. Does she work or is she around the house all day putting up with yeah, you? Yeah, no, she's, she's working. So ah, that's, uh, that's good. Where do you go from here, Richard? So I understand the whole point of having a sabbatical and jumping into it. Um, do you have hopes or aspirations or goals? I mean, we all enjoy reading your writing, and I would imagine that your numbers show that. It would have shown a fairly rapid acceleration these last six weeks. A lot of people there are, interestingly, a bit like golf course architecture. There might only be two or three people in any given club who might be interested in the things you write about. But around the world, we've all found each other in that world, and it's actually quite a large community. So has that readership gone up, and where do you go from here, do you reckon? Have you given that any thought? Uh, it, it has gone up. I, I, you know, I remain bemused at the fact that anyone's reading it, to be honest. So I, I sort of do it and I enjoy doing it and I'm pushing it out there. But, um, uh, it is lovely that some people are enjoying it. And, you know, I, I don't know how frequently these people tune in, but they are subscribing. And that's just, you know, it's, it's so rewarding that, um, from here, I, I have a book that's to my left in a drawer that I, I wrote um, during working times during COVID, and that was again five o'clock in the morning, just before I needed to get to the club because we had, you know, security issues and a whole load of admin to sort out. Um, I've written that, and it's ready to go, and I'm I'm just uh, I'm basically procrastinating like you wouldn't believe about sending that to publishers because I know how publishing works you know i'll get a hundred letters come back saying yeah oh, it's, you know, i don't think this is quite right or um but i will i'll mail that off sooner or later um, but like uh, there's a few other things around golf i'd love to do i'd love to do a bit more um journalism about turf science and try and get the club golfers to understand a bit more about oh, you know courtesy as a course and good luck with that rich yeah i know <laughs> yeah, it's a bang your head against the brick wall, that one, uh, unfortunately. But which doesn't mean you should stop banging your head against the brick wall. It just means that you should maybe mitigate how much that hurts by how often you <laughs> Got the most wear a helmet. Wonderful playing surfaces at Woking and those courses around there where you've got that sandy, loamy sort of soil and cool season grasses and the divots come out yeah. in one big chunk and you can just take them and put them back in. It's, like it never <laughs> it's got And it's got that great sort of ball turf interact ball turf club interaction it's just the best playing surfaces around there that sounds more like educational right that's the wrong term what you do at the moment is writing for entertainment it feels like a bunch of thoughts you've had about golf that are a bit quirky and offbeat and you put them down on the screen and send them out and people are enjoying it that's great you should never lose the if you ever lose the humility if the day you wake up and think i'm fantastic this is the day you'll be gone you won't ever be able to produce anything good again so that humility is important and the Genuine appreciation that people are sort of enjoying it. Trying to teach people about turf signs would be a very different sort of a writing, wouldn't it? A different kind of a mm. calling. Uh, it would be a real kind of a switch, which is not to say you can't do it. Popularising it. Like the Bill Bryson of turf. Bill Bryson of turf. Pat uh, Jones, who we have. I with, can't is, is believe you just mentioned his name. I love his books. <laughs> and I. it's funny, I was thinking about um, golf writing the other day and possible book ideas and um, – he just leapt out at me because his stuff is so dry. It's brilliant. He delivers it wonderfully. I've just downloaded, is it a short history of almost yeah. everything yeah. or nearly everything? That's brilliant. Yeah. I've just got that on Audible because I thought I haven't read his books for ages. I, I loved them when I did read them. 
Uh, and there's so much comedic material in the golf world, isn't there? I can't remember I mean, which Bill Bryson book it is, but I think of it every time I'm in a hotel having a shower, he describes the shampoo, the conditioner, and the body wash that you get there. He says, they're all the same thing. They're indistinguishable. Yeah, just put them all in the bathtub. He's, he has bars, I'm sure. But he's, they're all the same thing. Just put them in the bathtub and then enjoy your bath. Well, they're all just perfumes, really, aren't they? There's yeah, quite a bit of suggestion that maybe a lot of the stuff you doesn't do much single. aside from make people uh, smell good. Sorry, you were saying there. So so that's part of we mentioned. We talked about inspiration before. There's one there, obviously, that uh, some that you read that you enjoy reading, so you write. So. Yeah. Yeah, and and his style. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone will ever come close to his style. He, he just gets it to a T, doesn't he? But um, that sort of writing, I guess it's a scratch your own itch thing. I love reading his stuff. I love golf. If someone was writing in that style about golf, and there's plenty of you know ridiculous things that are happening around golf courses and clubs, uh, I would read it. So I'm sort of yeah, that's in the back of my mind there that. That's why I downloaded his book to listen to him again and, and familiarise myself with with his style again. So I can't believe you just mentioned him, Adrian. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. There you go. That's what Logue does. You'll now have to put that in the show notes. Bill, yes, okay. Bill Brock, there you go. He's, he's yeah. off to search out a list. Is he a golfer? He's a big good if he did run I'd a golf I'd be board. very yeah. surprised if he was a golfer. Very surprised if he was a golfer. Uh, Do you know who I discovered was a golfer the other day? I spent, I haven't published it because I'm not sure about it now. I'm letting it settle like Adrian, but um, I've always loved that Kipling poem, Myth, you know, a very famous poem. And he wrote it for his son who who then subsequently went off to war and got killed. It's a tragic piece of work. It's a fantastic poem. I've always loved it. And there's a whole story around that that I bore you and your your listeners with. But um, I, I sort of doctored it for golf and pasted in his poem and just made sort of comments oh, on it as if, you know, if he was a golfer. And I got right to the end. And I looked up something on Google, which is never a good idea, and I found out the guy did play golf. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I'd spent my whole life assuming he didn't. So I'll release that shortly. And, uh, you know, well, you have to now. It might make more sense. But both of our listeners have heard you say you've written it, so they'll both <laughs> have they? it. Yes, that's exactly well, some right. parallel there to um, – Stephen Pressfield, uh, again, who adapted that um, the Indian story to uh, to a golf yeah. to create the legend Bag of Bagavant, wouldn't it? Bagavant, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm well and truly out of my depth. I'm a daily newspaper hack, Richard. So none of this stuff makes any <laughs> sense to me. Do we take it all too seriously sometimes, golf? Do you reckon There's a lot of time, energy, and effort you're putting into writing pithy pieces about golf? As do I, as does Logue, sitting around here. Pithier the better. Sitting around here, you know, for no money, talking about golf into microphones for for no real purpose other than the joy of it. Do we take it too seriously? What's the role of golf beyond just the hitting of the ball and the, in people's lives beyond that? Is it more important than we think or is it less important and we make it more important than it should be? Oh, that's a tough question. They're really they're uh, well, kind of life I, questions, I, aren't I'm they? on the hmm. – yeah, I'm a golfer, so, I, you know, I think it's wonderful. It's so rich. It, it has so much capacity for – teaching us how to approach things if you get in the slightest bit cocky as you were saying about writing you're dead you're going to shank it um i think it's wonderful it brings all sorts of people together um at the same time i think some people do take it more seriously than i ever could but that's fine you know it's a it's a sport you can play in uh, so many different ways there's a thing uh, i i I think the, first of all, golf, I would say, you know, if it didn't exist, someone would invent it. Um, 
because it's just such a logical thing to do. Makes so physically. much sense because it makes no sense. That's yeah, right. exactly. It, it's a to take a rock and hit it with a stick is a very logical like pastime yeah. to to come up with. Andrew Thompson told us that, didn't he? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, the the thing I think evolves from golf and from playing golf is you you collect these sort of fleeting moments that leave a lasting impression. There, there's your experience of playing golf is this collection of these experience, like these fleeting moments that are stuck in your memory. And uh, like I can think of just, uh, you know, playing by myself a uh, game in Denmark one time, just playing by myself at a course I really loved and uh, had this rare opportunity to play it. And uh, it, an enormous downpour came down and I just took shelter under a tree and I had to sit there for 15 minutes or something taking shelter and it was just the most beautiful moment and uh, I'll never forget it. It was this fleeting moment that left a lasting impression. I was, you know, on the other side of the world playing a course I loved um, and it was all for me. I just experienced, like, I got to experience the whole thing on my own and uh, uh, it's, for me, that's what golf is, is this collection of those sort of moments and sometimes they're shared with other people, sometimes they're just for you um, and uh, it's it's not necessarily about, I couldn't tell you what Score I shot I on say, anything. When, when you stepped out from under the tree, yeah. what, what, what were you facing for your second? Yeah, no, six yes. iron across a ditch to a to a narrow target or whatever it might be. That isn't that attaching something to golf, though. Wouldn't that be a beautiful moment, regardless? You get out walking in that field, being hit by a storm, sat under a tree, and had yeah. all of that same thing happen. And I, look, I think that's that's another thing where golf course architecture ties into that enjoyment because you, you have people like Bill Core describes routing as looking at a piece of land and deciding how you would walk it. How animals walk it. Yeah, that's exactly. Oh, he did dispel that myth when I spoke to him the last time I spoke to him. It was a throwaway <laughs> line he used once and it got a The animal bit. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the the bit about, you know, would you walk this yes. way is still... Absolutely. Uh, his, uh, Nobody chooses to walk up a 70-degree slope, do they? <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. just don't do it. And, and, it, and it, it translates so well to uh, historical courses, like the old course. Mm-hmm. Again, if you were... Just walking that property, you'd walk all the way out to the fife there, circle around a little bit at the end, and then walk all the way back um, along one boundary fence, and then come back around the other boundary fence. And that that would be the walk that you would do to to traverse the old course. Originally, you would have done it the other way, though. To what <laughs> we see, I don't, I and once it, a year, you still. I don't think would. it matters that much <laughs> if you started left or right. But yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think golf is very similar to just. Uh, it's the only thing that's played in that big cathedral of nature, isn't it? Have we, so. have we just missed the point that really golf's just a metaphor, Richard, and that's why it's such a rich topic for these musings, the sort of thing that you're writing about, and that we've got loads. Of, that There's an old saying, and I don't know where it came from, but the, the smaller the ball, the better the writing. And I think golf mm-hmm. probably stands up pretty well in that. Sports writing, really well done, is magnificent. Whether you're interested in the sport or not, there's been some amazing basketball. Funnily enough, boxing, some amazing boxing stuff. Around. I couldn't imagine mm. anything I'm less interested in than boxing, but the writing about boxing can be beautiful. Is golf really just metaphor? And is that sort of what you're exploring subconsciously by then writing about it? Well, I'm biased because I love the game, but I, I think there's, you know, I love all sport, um, but Golf is played on a different pitch every time. That was something Alistair Cook's book picks up on. And, you know, you're at the mercy of the weather and luck plays such a role in it, which I think is a good sort of teaching for us in our general lives, isn't it? Um, I'm interested that Adrian went deep on golf architecture there because I mentioned thinking about doing a book that sort of tried to 
don't know, simplify or educate on on turf science, but I'm I'm perpetually mystified by how disinterested most golfers oh. are in architecture. Oh, ab- absolutely. Because, uh, and that's fine. I'm not judging anyone for it because I played golf for twenty years before I had uh-huh. any. Re- any understanding at all if i've got any now of what made a, a routing or a certain strategic hole better than another you just sort of feel that you're on a good golf course sometimes but mm-hmm. um there is it feels to me like that's a good example of where golf has just layer after layer after layer of complexity and that's why people have you know without wanting to sound too woo-woo i've had pretty strange experiences like adrian was experiencing under a bush somewhere on a golf course where you just feel like you know it's a moment you're never going to forget or it feels like more than normal life if you like it's i don't know working at a club i see quite a lot of people go there um and it's the place they go to dream almost it's the Mm. place they go to feel alive outside of the day-to-day drudgery of modern you know technologically driven life it's natural and rugged and there's something precious about that i think it's a separate place isn't it the the game itself golf is unique is it not? i've always thought richard in a whole bunch of ways one it attracts the artists and the engineers in almost equal numbers hogan and sevy uh, both obsessed by the game and but both very different in the way they think about it and go about it the competition is also unique i think no other player can have any influence on what you're doing. There are no, well, there are very few defined boundaries. Uh, and this is what, this is where golf course architecture, I think, gets interesting. The best courses ask you to decide how you will attack each given hole. And two different players can choose two completely different routes. Both arrive at the green and have exactly the same score. But the other thing that I think is unique about it is in terms of the competition, you're playing against the people that you're also playing with. And I think golf's rare that, and we've all had this, you go out with a bloke you play with regularly, he's playing really well for the first six holes and you're sort of, you know, heaping derision on him, waiting for it to fail. But if you get to the 15th and he's still going well, you're cheering for him, genuinely. Mm, mm. Genuinely want him to do well and finish it off. And play. I don't think that happens anywhere else or any other sort of sport. I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. I, I think there's something where you both play with and against the people that you're having the experience right. with this. Even side. the most cynical competitor does actually turn around by that point of the round, yeah. don't they? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I hope this guy finishes it off. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's- Tomo, mate, you're about <laughs> to have the round of your life. Yeah. Um, you know, keep it going. So it's interesting in a lot of ways. It's so unique. Lovely. It is. I think it is. And I think that's – so unlike you, I'm not interested in any other sports at all. I don't – watch, follow, read about, listen to any other sport. Barely interested in golf, let's face it. That's barely interested in golf. That's, <laughs> That's well, <laughs> in that competitive You did tell me before we started you were more interested in microphones than golf. <laughs> Well, golf. Well, in terms of equipment, that's right. I'm far more likely to be interested in a new mixing board or microphone than I am in sort of golf. But that's been the case for a long time, which is so. Golf equipment's an interesting one. Modern golf equipment is soulless. I feel you've written about the old persimmon woods and the irons and the, mm. there's a beauty to golf past and a romanticism that you can't recreate when performance is the only driving sort of force in a modern technology. There's nothing beautiful about a new driver. There's millions of them. Mm-hmm. But a persimmon driver, there's only one. Yeah. Only one. Norman used the same three wood for the best part of 25 years, mm. persimmon three wood. Jack Nicholas used a driver from the 40s. 
winning right up until the 1980s. And that's the that's probably a, a really obvious line of what we were talking about before, is you know, the people who that appeals to and those things about it versus people who are just look at the Scott Forson note. It's just about performance. If it performs better, it's better. There's no, no other reason for it to be. But I look, I've got some persimmon woods in my other office now, and sometimes I just pick them up and look at the grain and the shape. Somebody made that. You know, there's a pair of hands that took a square of timber and created this thing of extraordinary beauty out of it. Yeah. And that's It's a tool as well. Yes, exactly. And mm. it's a tool. It's a tool designed specifically mm. to do a job and in the hands of a good tradesman it can do amazing things. Yeah. And in the hands of a novice, obviously, it can do terrible things. But there's that I've put that very ineloquently, but all of that I think plugs into the things that we're that we're talking about. Um, it's what makes golf so and as you say, it's so multi-layered. I mean, you can you can spend your whole life being immersed in the rules of golf, should you want to. Yes. You could spend it's your funny. whole life being immersed in the handicapping system around golf, as you and I Zero. both know. <laughs> Logue, just for background, Logue works at – it's not called Golf Link anymore, is it? Or is it? Yeah. Golf Link. The handicap administrators here in Australia, as did I for some time. They had a sort of an editorial. I mean, up on the window, I remember, in the old office, there was a seven-page email someone had printed out. <laughs> That a retired actuary had, you know, sent in with his point by point criticisms of where the the handicap system got things wrong, and the amount of time he must have devoted to, oh, to, to thinking about, about that, putting it down, and then sending it in. So you can immerse yourself in that. You can immerse yourself in equipment. You can immerse yourself in architecture. You can immerse yourself in the swing in paths. Immerse yourself in paths if you're odd. <laughs> um, but that the light and each of those. There is enough in each of those, every one of those facets, to keep you interested for life, should you choose, because um, they're never-ending. And so it's that's, I think, what sort of fascinates me. You can pick what you like about it and really sort of focus in it. I mean, we all know the, the swing nerds, don't we? Like, you spend all their time on YouTube and Instagram looking at golf swings and, you know, and follow George Gankus and Kyle Berkshire and the Chambly and all that sort of stuff. So there's a... That, that, I think, is what... Have we just made. done the thing about golf for Rod Murray? <laughs> <laughs> you know, is, is there a thing about golf? It's an interesting idea, isn't it? I, I've always liked that idea. For, I, the original, the, the title there, that was an idea I had for a book about 10 or 15 years ago. I was going to write to 500 politicians, celebrities, well-known people who you knew play golf and just ask them to send back somewhere between three and 500 words about what they like about golf. You just call it the thing about golf. Mm -hmm. There's your book right there. Yeah. Writes itself. Exactly. <laughs> you can see the joy of it, can't you? You write a foreword, you write one email, change the names, and away you go. Hey, it's a terrific that's idea. But that's where that was the idea of the – that's where we got the title of the podcast, The Thing About Golf, which one day might – who knows, might be a book. We might take all those interviews and get someone to transcribe it and, and do it there. I feel like I ought to uh, just drop back in on the handicap system, having managed to, you know, insult something Adrian's heavily involved with and a whole load of people all around the globe. Actually, isn't that a major part of the appeal of golf that you and I could go out and play with an elite player, or you may be elite, I don't know, but um, <laughs> no. we can play at very different standards to people and we have this um, system for equalising most of that natural ability or ability to practice whatever it is we can neutralize most of that and go out and still have a great game and play match play and get close to each other scoring wise despite all of that discrepancy 
mean, you could apologize. There are other sports in with sort of handicap form. systems, but oh, no. nothing like golf. To me, I, well, here's the, one of the wonderful things about golf: you would never win a point in tennis against Roger Federer. Mm. It's impossible to do for us. Impossible. Can't happen. Well, it's on his racket if you did. Yeah, well, that's right. He's, he's fallen over <laughs> yeah. or something's happened. But on any given golf hole, almost any golfer might, under the right circumstances, have a better score than Tiger Woods. Yeah. I was playing, playing with the with club him. champion the other day and I was uh, I just a match. I was having a private match that he didn't know he was having. <laughs> you do this often, don't and you? I, I and uh, <laughs> I was two up after four holes or something like that. He, like, that's not how it ended, but <laughs> I thought to myself, I'm beating yeah. the club champion. So, well, someone once described it to me as it's a bit like poker. Any rank amateur could win any given hand by accident almost against the world's best poker player. But, of course, over 18 holes or over the course of a whole poker tournament, that's when the sort of talent shines. You know, that's different as well to a lot of other sports, I suspect. You know, you, you, you're not going to score a goal in, in a high <laughs> in a high an elite soccer game or football game, but you could feasibly, legitimately have a better score than one of the world's best professionals on any given hole at any given yeah. time. So it's uh, Richard, fascinating stuff. Do, do you play most of your golf at Woking still? Is that uh, no, um, no? I've I've been sort of um, touring around a bit recently. So you know, a major thing was to go and rediscover my love of visiting places for the first time, which I did a lot of sort of. 15 years ago um so i've been going to various places i've been on bucket lists for ages um uh i mentioned muirfield earlier in the mm. context of speed golf i realized when i was up there i'd waited almost 35 years together since Fowler when the open was it with 18 straight pars yep and we got there and i, I ran around so i was only there for about an hour but uh uh, Cleve Hill I went to, which was just the most amazing yeah. rugged landscape, but right overlooking Cheltenham and loads of uh, interesting architectural history there. To the, Cop- um, uh, the Cotswolds. Was that saved recently? Is that yeah. the one that was yeah. under threat there and the Cookie Jar Golf guys yeah. got on yeah. board? And Faldo, speaking of the Faldo connection, Nick Faldo, I think, got involved there, or certainly publicly, and uh, made okay. a bunch of statements on Twitter about uh, how it should be saved. The best so. incredible spot. Minchin Hampton um, Old is near there as well, I think, is that? Yeah, and Painswick as and well. Painswick, I haven't yeah. played either of those, but I, I, I need to get back down there. Um, so I've been touring around a bit. Um, where else have I been? Yeah, just uh, doing the rounds, really. I've been lucky. I have a couple of friends who are raters as well, so I'm going to tick off a few bucket list ones uh, in the next few um, next few weeks. Uh, Yorkshire, going to Ganton and Orwoodley and Moortown, which would be fantastic, and then uh, Scotland, but I'm not sure where in Scotland yet, so... Plenty to choose from. Okay, you, you pronounce those English towns so well. I had to <laughs> I had to run through that pronunciation a couple of times in my head before I realised where you're talking about. Um, have you played much overseas? Have you uh, travelled around a bit? I, I know, like not working very. in golf, they, everyone says you, you know you don't get to play a lot of golf. I actually think that's nonsense. You, you that's actually because you work in golf and you're that rare person <laughs> who actually plays an enormous amount of golf. I don't play, honestly don't play in a lot less than I used to, but I. I'd made a decision that I was going to like seek out some opportunities to play golf a few years back. And mercenary is the term you. <laughs> no, not at all. Like people offer you a game of golf, and you look for a way to accept that offer. Um, I think that's yeah. that's the mindset that you can change yourself into. Um, is that yeah. something you've done, Richard, to give you know, get um, back into the game? 
Not too much abroad. I've been to the States twice and been lucky and just played some incredible architectural gems over there. But um, uh, that was quite a while, but 2004, 2014. So I guess I'm due another one in a couple of years. So I'll start laying the hints down on the, <laughs> on the people involved. Um, other than that, Valderrama, um, haven't played in France. So I've played very little golf abroad, actually. Um, played a bit in Ireland, been to La Hinch a few times and got soaked to there. So it's lovely. Well, you needn't really go too far from where you are yeah, in uh, right. southwest London there. That's um, some pretty spectacular golf you've got around there. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to get to Australia, though. I mean, you've got some fabulous places there, and I know a lot of people who, who either come over here for a spell, Scott Warren we mentioned earlier, and uh, I've loads of mates here who've, who've been to Melbourne, um, other spots, and and some of the new courses down under just look incredible. We're very lucky. We've got some fabulous golf, but I do. I try. It's hard to make this point without sounding negative. People seem to think that we have a Royal Melbourne on every other corner here in Australia, and we really don't. We've got an awful lot of very bad golf in Australia too. Got a lot of doke fours. Yeah, most of the golf in Australia is fairly pedestrian, which is probably true of the UK and most places as well. But so, uh, so it's a purpose as a place to go yes, and hit a golf ball around. Our best lot, is there's fantastic. a lot of golf like that. There is, there is. But the, you're right, the new stuff down in Tasmania and King Island is just extraordinary. And, mm. of course, the Clates is working with Matt Goggin at Seven Mile Beach, where you will be able to tie your horse up at the front porch. <laughs> that's, uh, that's I was going to ask about that. That is Good. a commitment that Matt Goggin has given these there are horse families yeah i want it so that people can ride their horses here and they can tie it up out the front and come in and have a beer in the clubhouse which i think i can't wait to see that photo i think something we are starting to do well in australia and it's something the uk i think does very well and uk golf guy actually wrote a very interesting piece about this about the courses that are most in need of a restoration Uh slash renovation in australia we we We've built a few new courses, but let's face it, it's pretty rare. Yeah, You're, very much. A location like Seven Mile Beach is pretty rare to come across. What I think I've people we have done quite well and we should do more of is making something of existing- Existing stock. Yeah, existing stock. Like there's plenty of places which could be great golf courses, which are very mediocre golf courses mm-hmm. right now in Australia. And you just look at the work that OCM did at, say, Lonsdale- mm-hmm which was an incredibly unremarkable golf course, but now is fantastic. Lonsdale Links, if anybody gets a chance to go down there, is absolutely a marvel. It's not not long. They worked with the property they had, Mm -hmm. and they've exposed an amazing piece of land with the vegetation management they've done there and correcting years of sort of club committee-run golf course architecture, if you can put it that way, to create something completely amazing and and vaulted it up the rankings in Australia as well. Same with Peninsula Kingswood. Um, Now created a world-class facility out of a very good golf course, but now it's world-class. It's it's something you can put up on the world stage. Uh, Harley Cruz did a great job here with Kalara, Um, a much more challenging piece of land than those other two, but made something really great out of it. Um, And, uh, you know, I think there could be a lot more of that happening in Australia to elevate those Doke 4s up to like a Doke 6 or Doke 7 or something like that. And this is something I go backwards mm-hmm. and forwards on. I mean, it's a little bit like uh, coffee, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't cost any more to make a decent coffee than a rubbish coffee. 
but does it actually make any difference in the end? I wonder. I had this discussion with Clates and Greg Turner many years ago on a podcast. The value of having better golf course architecture at the lower levels of golf, that's awful language, but I think it conveys the message. If the local public golf course is a much better piece of golf course architecture, does the game benefit from that? It may not be in a meaningful way a number of rounds played and whatnot or even appreciation. Of course, people who don't even care about golf course architecture, who will tell you adamantly they're, they're anti the notion of golf course architecture, will generally come off a, one of the world's best golf courses, mm-hmm. having enjoyed it more because of the questions it asked without them realising it. Does that make sense? They won't have taken notice of the architecture, but it will have had an impact. They're aware so, that this was good. I think Richard said that earlier. Yeah, that's right, without necessarily knowing why or being able to articulate it. I wonder about that. But I think you're right. The stock of golf courses, and the same would be true in the UK of all those public golf courses, with not a whole lot of 80% of its tree management and mowing lines, as I think it was Brian Schneider said, have somebody like a Mike Clayton, a Mike Cocking, a Bill Cora go to most golf courses and give them some advice and do this and the course will be better. I think that could have a huge impact on golf rather than worrying about building new courses and whatnot. And mm. in England, Richard, you've got a lot of history to restore. Like every other, every other course is like an Abercrombie or a James Braid or a Mackenzie mm. um, or Colt. You know, just there's this embarrassment of... Richard, it's like, of like Donald Ross course. Great architecture, States, yeah. In Australia, we've mostly a clean slate. Like there's a lot of courses that were designed by some council person. The parks, <laughs> the parks guy at the, the council. The parks guy at the council yeah. designed a golf course or something. Um, and, you know, you know, if, if a course was uh, Carnegie Clark or Eric Appley or somebody designed it, then what remains of their influence yeah. has been iterated away by committees over oh, so yeah. many years that restoration actually isn't possible. So you, you're working with sort of a blank slate in a lot of places in Australia, which means you can be extremely creative. You, you know, don't have the constraints of a restoration project like at uh, some of the places you have in the UK. But um, uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's the best way to make use of existing golf stock, I think, is mm. to just make better golf. You've been in the industry, Richard. Let's wrap up with this. What are the what are the what are on the pluses and the minus sides for golf at the moment as an industry? Because even those of us who love it have to recognise there's a whole industry. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, oh, golf courses don't just sit there alone. What are, what are we doing well and what are we not doing well? I think the um, what are we doing well? I think the golf does the. The things that are great about it come from the game itself is out in the fresh air. It's, uh, it's a different game every time we're, we're more and more tied up in front of the screens and, and that sporting opportunity to be out and walk out, uh, you know, in the, in the wilderness and through the grass corridors, I think is, that's the real benefit of the game. We're, we're appreciating it more and more all the time. I think, um, and why don't we sell it, that? It seems like. Why don't we sell that? Well, that, that was going to be the um, the negative. <laughs> is I think golf PR somehow is um, tainted, and there's there's all sorts of reasons why, and you know we don't need to go into them here. But I, I don't think we shout loud enough about the benefits of the game. I don't think we make it easy enough for people to just simply try it. And I know various bodies in the game are trying very hard to do that, and I think the RNA are doing a super job in various um, parts of that jigsaw. But uh, uh, it's an interesting one, Grow the Game, because 
you know, us golfers all know how much there is in this game of value. But actually, uh, if there were twice as many people playing golf, we'd have a very big problem because there's not space for them. So and you, there's not space to build a, the huge golf courses. Um, Especially if we let the ball keep going so far. Let's not open that can of worms, Richard. Yeah, so. no, I, was, <laughs> I thought about mentioning the ball. <laughs> Uh, well, Luckily, I don't hit it that far, so I'll leave that. Well, most of us don't, but there's... It feels like that might be moving, but, you know. Yeah, well, we may look back in 20, 30, 50 years' time, and Martin Slumber's place in the game might become one of the most important in history. I agree with you. I think you and I are on the right track about a lot of stuff. When I, yeah. They're the only probably prominent body that you look at and think, wow, they're really getting a lot of stuff right without trumpeting about it, they're just doing it. You know, the facility that they bought in Glasgow and what they're doing with that and some of their, their visionary stuff for inclusivity and it's legitimate, genuine, it's not PR, they're not ticking boxes, they're genuinely improving. And I think the the distance thing might be something that Martin Slummers is end up doing something about. Uh, we should let you go, Richard. We've kept you far longer than I meant to, but it's been fabulous to talk to you. I feel like we've found a kindred okay. spirit, so I think that you'll, uh, you'll be back and... Uh, that would be something to look forward to. But thanks for taking some time today, mate. Out of your writing... I oh, know it's not writing time. You're at the other end of the day, aren't you? So we haven't dipped into your writing time, so that's good. Thanks for taking some time, mate. Really enjoyable. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Logue, I think we'll put panel on the list. Uh, for sure, yeah. yeah. Um, One of us. <laughs> he is. He's, <laughs> he's in the game? <laughs> yeah. There you go. You've passed, you've passed your test, Richard. Well done. That's it for episode 102 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. We'll be back to do it again now, maybe next week, maybe the week after. We're on a bit of a weird schedule, but we will be back. That's the most important thing here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.